Hi, everybody. How is your day going? Um, you know, my day is actually going pretty well. Um, I woke up, I made myself a latte with my very inexpensive, <laughs> my, uh, my very cheap, it's not cheap though, I, you know what, I don't even know where that was supposed to go, but, um, and then my mother made me some eggs, so I've had a pretty good day so far. It is like noon on a Saturday, so I forgot to post yesterday. I am so sorry about that. Um... But today, we are continuing our exploration of the 50 States Unsolved series, where we look at one unsolved case from each state. So today, we are looking at Maine. Personally, I do not know much about Maine except for Lobster and Nova Scotia, which I think is nearby. I definitely know that Nova Scotia is in Canada, but... Nova Scotia reminds me of the Oak Island mystery, which my father is obsessed with watching on TV, even though he knows it's one of those shows that you can watch eight or nine seasons of and not be any closer to finding this very elusive treasure. I am therefore team lost gold of World War II. We have a little rivalry going on between us, but this is the disappearance of Joan Risch. First, I want to get into some background about Joan, the day of the disappearance and the scene which investigators found, then we'll go into evidence like normal and then theories. So background, Joan Risch was born Joan Carolyn Baird in Brooklyn, New York in May of 1930. By 10 years old, Joan had lost both her parents in a fire in 1940. Um, In 2016, the Boston Globe reported that Joan told acquaintances before her disappearance that she was sexually abused as a child. After the fire, Joan moved in with the family who formally adopted her, resulting in her later applying for social security under the name Joan Natras and graduated in 1952 at Wilson College, earning a degree in English literature. Um, So here's a quote about Joan. Joan went to work in publishing. She started as a secretary, later moving to supervise the secretarial pool and ultimately became an editorial assistant at the Harcourt Brace and World. And then later, the company Thomas Crowell Company. And in 1956, she married an executive at one of the companies, Martin Risch, and left work thereafter to raise a family with him. Living in Ridgefield, Connecticut, the couple had their first child, Lillian, the next year, and a son, David, in 1959. In April 1961, they moved to Lincoln, Massachusetts, outside Boston, where they easily integrated into the community. Joan became an active member of the League of Women Voters, while Martin pursued a career with the Fitchburg Paper Company. Don't see any mention of the Michael Scott Paper Company, but I guess that comes up later. I'm sorry, that was that was a very corny joke. Um, anyways, Joan spoke of becoming a teacher after the children got older. So we are really seeing this idyllic 1960s household put into place. You've got this perfect wife, two kids, and a doting husband. But it is not so idyllic because Joan would be found missing from her home in October of 1961. 
on the day of the disappearance, um, there was like a lot of sightings of Joan. So I just want to get into those sightings first um, before we look at anything else. So October 24th, 1961 was a seemingly normal day for the family. Martin, Joan's husband, was away on a business trip at the time of the disappearance, leaving about around eight in the morning for Logan Airport to fly to New York City. After Martin leaves, Joan begins her day like normal by waking and then feeding the children. Joan took her child David over to the neighbor's house for a play date. She had a dentist appointment later that day with a dentist she had been recommended to her by a family friend. So Joan just decided to leave Lillian in the car while Joan went to the appointment. After the appointment, and I think this is the reason that Lillian came on the trip and was not sent to the neighbor, Joan took Lillian to a department store and then paid cash. So we don't have a record, I guess, that you would have with buying on credit cards. You wouldn't have a record exactly of what was purchased. Um, but Joan returned home with Lillian and David, and I say and David because she later grabbed David from the neighbor, Barbara Barker, before arriving at the house. So this is around 11.15 a.m. Soon after arriving home, Joan changes into a house dress, puts David down for a nap, serves Lillian lunch, and begins some gardening. This nap is almost always until 2 p.m., again, helping us establish a timeline. During this time, it is important to note that the several witnesses coming into the house who all say that nothing was wrong and that the scene was in order. So the house in general, that's that's what the scene means. Um, They said the house was in order. So in order, first we have the mailbox. The mail... um, the mail and milk people who were delivering mail and milk. These two witnesses were both reporting that nothing was wrong or visibly wrong that they could see in the house. Next, we also have a dry cleaner who came by to pick up some of Martin's suits to dry clean and return uh, return later um, when, when they were done. He entered the house and found nothing wrong. So this is the only witness that's actually inside the house. And he saw Joan a couple of times while she gardened and pruned the flowers. At 1 p.m., Barbara Barker, the neighbor, reports bringing her child Douglas over for a play date because Douglas and Lillian were about the same age. Barbara does not report anything suspicious and reported Joan to be quite calm. This is the neighbor that Joan left her children with uh, later and earlier. So here is where it gets interesting. Around 2 p.m., Joan reportedly put Lillian and the neighbor's child, Douglas, back in Barbara's yard. But this was unscheduled, and as we'll look at later, this is proven by the last reported sighting of Joan. So Joan is putting the children back in Barbara's yard, and Barbara thought that the children were still at Joan's house. So the last reported sighting of 
Joan is at 2.15 and the neighbor reports seeing Joan, quote, wearing what she thought was a trench coat over her clothing, moving quickly up her driveway, carrying something red with outstretched arms from her car towards the garage. At the time, she assumed her neighbor was chasing one of the children. This is the last confirmed time anyone saw Joan Rish. An hour later, Virginia Keene, and you don't really need to know her name, she's... She's not very relevant for this story, at least. But anyways, she was the daughter of the Rish's next door neighbors, and she got off the school bus and went towards her house. She recalled seeing an unfamiliar car, possibly a General Motors model, dirty and two-toned with one of the colors being blue. Five minutes later, another local resident who lived on a nearby street said that they had stopped driving to let a car out of the Keens or the Rishes driveway. Both Virginia and her mother, so I guess it's kind of important. So Keens are next door neighbors for the Rishes and the daughter says, Hey, I'm seeing I'm seeing this car, kind of weird, don't know what it is. And another said, Oh well I had to stop to let them out of the driveway because they were in the driveway and they needed to get out, so I had to stop. And they said that that would either be in the Keens or Rish's driveway, but the daughter and the mother of the Keen house said that there was no car in their driveway at that time, so this car had to have come from the Rish's house. So Barker took Lillian back to her home at 3.40 p.m., intending to take her children on a shopping strip trip with her, So Barker believed that Joan was still in the house and just left, assuming that, you know, Lillian would essentially just go inside. And when she returned, when Barker, excuse me, returned um, at 4.15, Lillian came back to the Barker's house and she said, quote, mommy is gone and the kitchen is covered with red paint. Um, her brother was crying in her crib. So this is um, Lillian's brother, David. David was crying in the crib because his barker, his diaper needed to be changed. After Barbara went to the Rish house and herself verified Lillian's account, as I mean, I hope she didn't think that it was red paint. I, I th- I'm pretty sure Barbara was like, oh, God, this is blood. Um, but anyways, police were officially called at 4.33 p.m. The scene was a mess. Obviously, there was blood everywhere, as Lillian implied with the red paint and Barbara verified. So actual evidence includes blood was everywhere, but it was specifically concentrated on large smears on the floor. There were three bloody unidentified fingerprints that were found. Um, Because it was the 1960s, there is no way to see if these fingerprints were Jones but I believe the number is around 500 people that they have tested these fingerprints against and have not found a match. There was a roll of paper towels found scrawled on the floor, the son's coveralls and underpants. So this is David, the like little toddler or baby, basically. They were found on the floor and appeared to have been under something heavy and coroners estimated that this weight would have to be something like a body. So they estimated that they thought that Joan's bloody like 
blood had seeped into the clothing in such a way that she had to have been on top of it for a long period of time. There were blood drops found on the stairs outside the master bedroom and on a window in the child's bedroom. I'm speculating, but I think the window was in David's room rather than Lillian's room because he would have been the only child at the house. And if any of my listeners are wondering, he was found unharmed. So I guess that is the only good thing to come out of this story. But there were no footprints anywhere, which investigators said was very unusual or very lucky for the culprit. And there were trails of blood that led to the driveway where blood was found on the fender, windshield, and trunk of the family car. So there was a police estimate of half a pint of blood being found around the house. For reference, as a full-grown adult, Joan would have had around... So give or take half a pint or so, 10 pints of blood in her body. So with this estimate, they believed it was not a life-threatening injury. This is very, very off topic, but this reminds me of that one Pretty Little Liars episode where Mona, I believe that's her name, she's trying to frame the group and she collects um, vials of her blood inside her computer to um frame the group for her murder I can't remember what her character was named but I think it was Ashley Benson who ended up going down for the murder because they were like oh my god there's so much blood not a body but then I think A ended up killing Mona anyway so it was it was very weird (sighs) honestly Pretty Little Liars was kind of a trip like I I watched that at such a young age I was I was so confused just about all of it but The next piece of evidence is the phone. So this is an old school rotary dial. It was ripped out of the wall and placed into a waste bin. And a homemade phone book was found nearby and it was open to the emergency numbers page. This possibly indicates remorse that someone was willing to open the emergency numbers book. And I don't know exactly where this is coming from in the house, but it makes you wonder how does the attacker... Um, or the perpetrator, or I believe as Criminal Minds calls it, an unsub, how do they know where the phone book is? Because this is is a homemade phone book. I don't suppose it was just laying out. Maybe it was, but how do they know? Maybe this is by sheer luck that they found it, but the conspiracy theorist in me wants to say that it's not luck, and the person knew exactly where it was kept. There is also a piece of book evidence, and I'm just going to read a quote from that. Sarah Gerson, a reporter with the Fence Viewer, um, the local newspaper, went to the town's public library to research similar cases as background. In one of the books that she looked in about the purported disappearance of Brigham Young's 27th wife, and if you don't know who Brigham Young is, he's honestly a crazy guy. Um, He he kind of founded the Mormon church, or at least he moved a lot of them to, I think, Utah or Idaho. I'm sorry, I mixed up those two states. But yeah, he's a very big figure in the Mormon church. And 
But anyway, so she was looking up the disappearance of Brigham Young's 27th wife, and she saw that Joan Rish had checked out the book in September, a month before her disappearance. In another book called Into Thin Air, about a woman who, like Rish, had left behind blood smears and a paper towel when she went missing, Gerson again found Rish's signature on the checkout card. Um, at this time, so you're, you're probably like, what is this signature? Why is she signing the inside of the book? Um, quite recently until they had those barcode systems at the library, you would like manually sign it out. So that's how she's able to tell that this is Rish because she found like Joan Rish signed on it. And she reported her findings in the newspaper. A group of library volunteers who looked through the records found that Rish, a regular borrower, had taken out 25 books over the summer of 1961, many of which, I don't have the actual number, had to do with murders and missing persons cases. Based on this, Green and her journalistic colleagues believed Rish might have staged the apparent crime and disappeared voluntarily. As you know, we are now going to get into the theories. And I am looking at the time. This is only about 20 minutes, so this might be like a very, very short case. Um, it's very interesting, though. You, I could probably spend, honestly, several months speculating. But theories are very simple for this case, um, essentially. Theory one, Jones staged the disappearance. Theory two, it was a random break-in which resulted in her death. And three, Joan knew the attacker excuse me, either as a doctor or a lover. And you just know how I love this lover twist. I think it's so interesting, but I don't know. It's just kind of fun. Like a lover did it. Um, so getting into the first theory about Jones staging the disappearance. Um, again, I like to think of this theory, like I said earlier, as a reference from the Pretty Little Liars episode because basically Mona is taking out a little bit of blood and keeping it cold enough where it doesn't, you know, like dry up and harden. Um, and then when she has enough to indicate her murder, she disappears. But the evidence for this is the mass amounts of books that Joan rented, which eerily matched the reports of Joan's escape. Her body was never found. The baby was found unharmed, and Lillian was across the street at the time. Martin was not home when this occurred. There was no footprints or evidence of another person. And again, the fingerprints, we did not have Joan Rish's fingerprints, so we can't test and say, well, hey, these are Joan's fingerprints. We just don't know if they're her fingerprints. But there was a small amount of blood being found, and Joan only needed enough to make investigators think she could be injured and dead. Evidence disproving this why was the phone ripped from the wall? I feel like maybe that would identify another person there, but it just seems like a lot of work to do to stage your own disappearance. Also, why would she clean up? Because the smears indicated that someone tried to clean up with the paper towels. Wouldn't it look better? You know, let's get into her head for a second. Wouldn't it look better if the scene was as messy as possible? And then they really think that something struggle occurred. Um, if she had foresight to put one child across the street, why not put another? 
Also, the bloody unidentified fingerprints, they could be Jones. I want to make that abundantly clear. They could be Jones, but at the same time, they could be someone else's. There was also an unknown GM model car, which neighbors cited seeing. That's it, Um, but it's so hard to discredit this theory because the evidence, like the phone being ripped out of the wall, you can just say Joan did it. Any sort of criticism just turns into Joan did it. So this theory is very, very circumstantial to me. I forgot to mention earlier, but the motive of several of these theories is that Joan was pregnant, and the other variation of this theory is that she wandered off somewhere, maybe in a mental health break, or drug-induced after bleeding and maybe tried to clean it up. My rating, as I've started doing the past few episodes, I think this is a 6 out of 10, where 1 is very unlikely and 10 is, like, in my opinion, it definitely happened. I say this because it could be true with the book evidence. That's kind of the only non-circumstantial thing. But that's kind of the strongest evidence that's not circumstantial. And because that's the only thing, I'm rating this a 6 out of 10. On to theory two, a random break-in. I'm going to preface this theory by saying I don't really believe it, so you could say that that's like affecting how I'm presenting it to you, but I'm trying my best to be impartial, but I'm human and it is so impossible. But this theory posits that Joan was the victim of a random break-in. The evidence supporting this is the phone ripped from the wall, possibly in a struggle, and the three bloody unidentified fingerprints. As for evidence disproving it, why was the emergency number book open? Why no footprints? I guess the perpetrator could have been lucky. Why were there paper towels on the ground indicating someone had tried to clean up? Where is Joan's body? Because if it was a random break-in, it would not have resulted in her body being taken. Um, Why were the kids placed across the street? And... The unknown GM car, you know, if this was a random break-in, I don't think that they would just be casually exiting the neighborhood. So, my rating, I will give this a 3 out of 10 because, again, it's really an I-don't-know type case because we don't have a lot of evidence about what happened that's not circumstantial, but because there's so much more evidence against this theory that than there is supporting it. It just feels very unlikely to me. So our last and final theory is that Joan knew the attacker. This has two sub-theories, either a doctor or a lover. And you know how I love the lover angle. I think that's very interesting. I'll address these each as their own separate theories. So sub-theory one Doctor. Again, full disclaimer, I already really believe this one. I think it's very likely given social factors and laws in Maine at the time of the disappearance. Laws in Maine at the time. Um, laws in Maine at the time, I like to compare them to like laws that you'd very commonly see in the South, but they only allowed women to get an abortion if the woman's life was at risk or in cases of rape and incest. Kind of interesting to see the same types of Republican abortion bans in place somewhere that tends to skew very left today. Anyways, there has also, there was also a lot of social stigma at the time around abortions. So this baby could have potentially been Martin's or a lover's. Either way, she didn't want it. And again, no surprise here. I think that is her decision to make. 
So evidence for this theory is that the children were at the other house. Uh, She didn't want to see it, but she obviously couldn't put David at the other house because he's like literally a toddler. The unidentified fingerprints, the cleaning up was attempted, showing remorse and possibly a personal connection. There were blood drops around the house showing that she was possibly wandering around the house trying to check on the children. Martin was out of town. The phone was ripped out of the wall after she possibly tried to call for help. The phone book was open when he, when, wow, this is really some internalized misogyny. I feel like I default to he, him, his pronouns when I'm talking about a doctor, but um, when it was ripped out of the, so sorry, the phone book was open um, when the doctor was possibly having a crisis of consciousness and maybe he ripped out the phone before or after out of frustration. The body was not found. Possibly Joan was taken to a hospital but bled out on the way. And this explains the unknown um, GM model car, which neighbors cited. And the only evidence disproving this that I can really think of is the book rental. But again, that's also a little circumstantial because it's like that could have nothing to do with the disappearance. Yes, it is coincidental that um, one of the books matches parts of her disappearance, but no book matches all of it. So my rating on this one will be an 8 out of 10 because it seems the most likely to me and it explains so much of the evidence. You know, this is an esteemed member of the community, and he could lose his license and status as an, again, esteemed member of the community for even successfully attempting a procedure like this. So he not only could lose everything, he's got everything riding on this. I'm sorry. I'm really trying to change and not do the he pronouns. Ugh. Okay. Anyways, getting into our second and last sub theory and just last theory in general. This theory was proposed by my parents when we talked about the case, but essentially it goes like Joan puts the children at the neighbor's house to do some nasty with her lover, but a fight breaks out and they try to hurt each other. The lover feels bad and tries to take Joan to the hospital and again dies on the way. Evidence proving the children were at the other house. You know, you don't want to see, possibly have them see or hear anything and then accidentally snitch be like, yeah, mommy was wrestling with with her friend um the unidentified fingerprints possibly coming from this lover um there was a cleaning up attempted because i feel like if it's a crime of passion the lover could have a crisis of consciousness blood drops around the house specifically concentrated in the bedroom so maybe that's where the initial scene happened martin was out of town i don't know why like it just makes a lot of sense that he would be out of town. The phone was ripped out of the wall. The body was not found. And it was, I mean, okay, the body not found piece is very interesting to me because I think it's, you know, I'll tell you what, I think it's so interesting because if this was more of like a public affair, I'm sorry, if this was more of a public affair, then she goes missing, everyone is instantly like, oh, it's her. Yeah, we know it's her lover on the DL that did it. So maybe that's why her body wasn't found. Also, the unknown car, again, that kind of just implies that someone else was there. 
Um, evidence disproving the book thing again, like I said earlier, it could just totally not be connected at all. My rating, I would give this, uh, you know what? I would give this a seven out of 10 because it seems like it checks all the boxes. Personally, I think the doctor theory is better, but either way, I do like the doctor or the lover theory the most. So that was our case for today. Thank you so much for listening. Come back next time for a new episode of the 50 States series. If you like this episode, please make sure to leave us a five-star review. And I hope you guys just have a really great day. Bye.